Entitlement. We've all seen it. That was a clip from Willy Wonka, the old Willy Wonka, with, I think it's Veronica Salt, wants it now, spoiled, used to getting everything she wants, and then, of course, accidentally stands on the good egg, bad egg scale and gets found out to be a bad egg and gets thrown down the garbage chute. It comes across, entitlement, though, it doesn't just come across in the, I want it now, from kids. It also is all around us in the language of rights, my rights, and in the language of deserving, I deserve. And we see it every day. As uh, Brad was asking us to share things we were thankful for, I was reminded that just yesterday, we were driving home, and all of a sudden, I had this thought in my head. I was like, oh, I forgot to plan dinner. And it's like 4.40, and I don't know what I'm going to make. And isn't that annoying? And as soon as I thought that, and it popped into my head, oh, my goodness, I'm feeling entitled to never have to make food. Since when did a necessity become a, like something that should just happen? How privileged am I that a thing like putting food on my table is, is something that I don't really have to think about very much. And when I do have to think about it even a little bit, I get annoyed. It's, I was just so shocked to how quickly my, my thinking and my pattern happened. And then I had to say, well, Lord, thank you that I live um, with so much that I don't have to think every day about what I have to eat, but that you've given me enough so that I can even buy a week's worth of food and um, it will last me through the week instead of having to moment by moment, day by day, plan out and wonder what I'm going to eat. Sometimes we also uh, see these entitlements and rights. Um, Actually, they're spoken to us all around us by advertising. And uh, we all almost, we get so used to it that we kind of get desensitized to it. But it actually can be pretty funny when you actually look at an advertising, something that they're advertising, and it's used with this language of you deserve. So um, I, I actually have a little bit of a game here I'm going to play with you. I've got a couple of different phrases. I went online and tried to find, you know, advertising and looked it up. And a couple either slogans or little phrases that companies have used to sell something. I'm going to tell you the phrase, and I want you to guess what it is, either who's saying it and what they're selling. So, phrase number one, you deserve a break today. I heard Kit Kat bars, who else? So what else do they think? McDonald's, they're right. Yep, that used to be McDonald's old slogan. Okay, second one. Do not deny your dark side. What are they selling? I hear chocolate, Snickers. It's actually Reese's Pieces cups. That's a dark chocolate version. Uh, Last one. Because you're worth it. What do you think they're selling? Ooh, you got it. L'Oreal, hair products. (laughs) That's pretty nice hair. Um, Actually, my husband found that one for me, the Trekkie in our, and the, well, I know the Trekkie, and so he just thought it was really funny that Star Wars was, anyways. So anyways, um, yeah, you're worth it. So apparently you're worth having nice, or you deserve it, and you're worth it. Not having nice hair. Um, um, I also looked up, uh, there were tons and tons of advertising that had just the word, you deserve it. So apparently, 
we deserve a car, we deserve hamburgers, we deserve banking, uh, and we deserve Louisiana-grown vegetables. We deserve an awful lot of things. And with so many voices telling us what we deserve, it's really easy to begin believing it. And uh, this can change to change our attitude to that of something that we become just assuming that our rights, our desires should be put in front of others, that we are more important than everything else, to simply look at what it is we want and not care about how it might affect others and how it um, and our relationship with God and what God desires. In our story today, we are going to be looking at Second um, Samuel chapters. A little bit of I'm going to do a little overview of chapters 13 and 14, and then we're going to look uh, a good hard look at chapter 15, and we're going to hear about Absalom's rebellion, David's son Absalom, and his attempt to take the throne from David. And when I was studying this, I have to tell you, I kept thinking, okay, I got my hand, I know what this is about, and then I'd read some more, and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's another layer, and another layer, and another layer. So there is just way too much in here for me to cover in 25 minutes. So I have to narrow it down, and what I've decided to narrow it down to is I'm, I want to look at with you the language of deserving and um, I want and start looking at how does entitlement and rebellion intertwine, and, or how are they connected, and how does it affect our relationship with God and with, and with others. There are, as we read through it, you'll probably notice there's a lot of other things that are on the surface that you can totally see about um, how, what sort of prompts rebellion and, there, and um, some of the other reasons why Absalom would rebel. And I really do encourage you to dig even more because there is a lot in here. But for today, we're going to focus on entitlement and rebellion. So before we jump in, I'd like to pray and ask God to open our hearts and open our minds so we can understand and that we'd be able to hear and to receive the truth that he has for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that your spirit, uh, you've given your spirit to guide and to teach us. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here. I ask that you would use um, the words of my mouth and uh, the planning that I have done to speak your truth. And God, I ask that each of us would be attentive to your Holy Spirit that as we read this, we would not only see the words on this page, but we would also sense and see where it is your spirit is guiding us and what your spirit is telling us to pay attention to so that we can hear you and that our lives may be transformed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Brad talked about how choices that David made with Bathsheba set him up on a certain path. And kind of like a ripple effect, um, when you cast a stone into the water, ripples form that you can't control. So with David, his sins, he couldn't control the effect. And there was um, consequences that were going to happen. And those are the, what, that's basically what's happening in these passages. We're starting to see some of these ripple effects. And I think as we dig into, into it, there's a couple of common themes that perpetuate more and more ripples, uh, themes of rebellion and themes of entitlement. Date, we, heard, we heard also that God had convicted David and um, had said, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave all of Israel and Judah to you. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Actually, there's some interesting, almost poetic justice there because up until this point, David had never used the sword for anything but the purpose of God and, to, and the protection of Israel. And the first time that he, he abused the power that he had and, and used the sword uh, for his own purposes. And, and we see that as a result, fighting, it, it lasts for generations throughout um, David's, David's family. What is David's response though? That, because this is going to be key. David's response is immediately one of repentance. He immediately comes to the Lord and repents. And God does give him forgiveness, but it doesn't change the fact that there are consequences that are still going to be carried out. And right away we see in chapter 13, we see these things starting to happen. David has an eldest son whose name is Abner. Nope. Yes. Amnon. Thank you. Abner is the other guy. Amnon. <laughs> Amnon. That's right. That's how the kids tell me. They always tend to know all these little details. Amnon was um, the eldest son, and he became obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar. And, and he has a friend who is not very uh, wise and encourages him and says, Why are you so down? You're the king's son. You should be happy. And so he tells him what he's sad about. And he says, Well, you're the king's son. You should just have whatever you want. So he concocts a cunning plan and he manipulates and then he takes advantage of his sister against his will. She, in turn, runs to her, old, her full brother, Absalom in tears and he consoles her and says don't take it to heart and don't uh, let's not make a big spectacle out of this but let's just be patient and what's interesting is the only thing it said about David is that he was furious and so this is where things really start to pick up for Absalom understandably so he is outraged but he waits patiently for two years saying neither good nor bad about anything at, uh, saying ni nothing good or bad about Abner, but just being quiet, cold, calculated. And then after two years, no justice has been served to Tam uh, Tamar and no punishment has given to uh, Amnon. And so Abner justifies his actions of revenge and kills his brother. And then he gets sent to, uh, not, not sent, he flees and is in exile for a number of years. Already we can see that Amnon is acting in the same path as his father was. He is thinking that his own desires are more important than those of others. He thinks he deserves it. And he's putting himself above God and himself above others. But unlike David, he is not repentant. It actually says that afterwards, Am Ab Amnon too many A's. Amnon hates her more than he had loved her. So he hardens his heart. After a number of years, Joab 
was David's advisor comes and convinces him, hey, look, you should just bring your son. I know you're longing for him to go to him, and uh, you should just bring back Absalom. Don't let him live in exile anymore. So he convinces David, and David says, fine. But David is still so furious that he says, okay, bring back my son, but he has to go to his house, and he must never see my face. Gives him the cold shoulder, act as if, act as if he doesn't even exist. So Absalom lives that way for a, couple, for a couple of years and then gets really frustrated, feels again like some injustice is being done, that his father's totally ignoring him, and decides to take action into his own hands. So that's where we pick up. It's um, 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 28. You can read along with me if you brought your Bibles. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. And then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field's next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Joab... Uh, so Abs- Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And then Joab did go to Absalom. And he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And, he's, and Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king and ask, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom, and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot, with horses, and with 50 men to run in front of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? And they would say, from one of the tribes of Israel. And he would say, look, your cause and your complaint are valid, but there is nobody from the king's court to hear you. And then he would add, oh, if only I was king. Then anybody who had a complaint could come to me, and I would see that justice was served. Also, when anybody approached him to bow down to him, Absalom would reach out his hand and pick him up and kiss him and embrace him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of all the men of Israel. Absalom is being so cunning. He is doing everything. He's like the, he looks like a politician. We've probably all seen this. Kissing babies, you know, like doing the thing, getting down and dirty with the farmers, talking about things. Like, yeah, I care, right? He may have actually cared. We don't know. It doesn't give us enough information. It could be that Absalom is truly outraged that his father is refusing to give justice where he thinks justice it needs to be dealt with. And he's saying, look, I'm going to go ahead and take action. It's not ever happening, and so I should be king because it needs to happen. So he could be justifying his actions, or he could just be taking advantage and seeing a loophole in how he could actually become king. 
Regardless, it works. People start to follow Absalom. We continue. At the end of four years, he did this for four years. He's a very patient and cunning man. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord while your servant was living in Geshur and Aram. I made this vow. Oh, if the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship him in Hebron. Sounds so holier than thou and so wonderful. So David doesn't suspect a thing and says, go in peace. And so he went to Hebron. Hebron was the city where David originally was made king. That was the place where all the tribes of Israel came and they worshiped together and anointed him as king. It was in the tribe of Judah. And Absalom knows because King David was from the tribe of Judah, Judah would be the trickiest tribe to get on his side. So go back to the same place King David was king, pretend to worship there, and in so doing, kind of coerce the tribe of Judah to joining him. And he does more than this. He invites 200 men from Jerusalem who have no idea about anything he's about to do and says, hey, come celebrate with me. And they come. And because they come with him, once they're with him, it's going to look like they're following him, right? And they're stuck. They're trapped. And all of a sudden, they're coerced and manipulated into this movement, whether or not they wanted to be. Absalom also sends out secret messengers throughout the tribe of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And while Absalom was sacrificing at the gate, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor. Ahithophel, who it says later on, David and Absalom and everybody considered what he said to almost be the words of God. He was such a cunning and wise man. He was the perfect person for Absalom to have betrayed David and come and join him and give him more support. And so it says... Ah, I lost my place. And so it says Absalom's following kept on increasing. More and more people kept joining him, and more and more um, strength kept, uh, Absalom kept getting more and more strength. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee. None of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us in the city to the sword. Even in this, he's recognizing, I, you know, I can spare the city bloodshed. If we don't get out, Absalom is coming and a whole bunch more people in this city are going to die needlessly. We'd better hitchhike it out of here and get as far as we, as we can away, gain some strength, and then see what we can do. So all his officials agree. They say, great, let's get up, let's go. And they, they start marching out. And David stops at the, at the gate of Israel, Israel <laughs> the gate of Jerusalem. And he lets all of his household and all of his men pass him by to make sure they get out safely. And as people are passing him by, we see a couple, there's three or four people who stop. And he has to kind of have rapid-fire decision-making. Okay, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do here? What am I going to do here? And we see again in this that even though David probably recognized that some of what's happening is as a result of his sin, and these are consequences that he has to face, we also still see in this that God is merciful that God is still present with David and God is providing way, a way for David to eventually come back and, and be king again in Jerusalem. So it says here in chapter 16, the king set out with his entire household, chapter 16, sorry, verse 16 of chapter 15. 
The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten of his concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out, and the whole people followed him, and they halted him at some distance away. And all the men marched past him, along with all the Carathites, the Pelethites, Palithites, and 600 Gittites, who had accompanied him from Gath. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, who was actually a Philistine, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, and you're an exile from your own homeland, and you only came yesterday, and today shall I make you wander with us? When I don't even know where I'm going, go back. Take your countrymen and may kindness and faithfulness be with you. He said, it's not worth it. Like, you just arrived here. I don't, I don't hold anything against you or whatever. I know you just came here to find refuge since you're exiles from your own hometown. These, these may have been the same Philistines who helped David years earlier when he was um, hiding uh, in Philistine country so that Saul wouldn't kill him. We don't really know. But regardless, these are friends of David's who had come to try and find a new home. But Ittai replies to the king, As surely as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my king may be, there, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. So David said, Go ahead, march on. And Ittai the Gittite marched on with all of his men and the families that were with him. It's like a little ray of hope, a little bit of um, a little fr- a friendship, a fresh of breath air, a friendship and loyalty in the midst of deep de- de- betrayal and disloyalty from his own son. We see that God is uh, lifting up friends around David. The whole countryside wept along as people passed by, and the king crossed the Kidron Valley. And next we see Zadok, the priest. Zadok and the other priests had come along with the, um, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and were sacrificing as the people left the city. And after they had finished leaving the city, David then tells him, look, don't take the Ark of the Covenant. Don't, I don't want it to follow me. Bring it back to the city. It says, I am not, uh, bleh, chapter 25. The, Lord said, the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Interesting enough, we just heard that Absalom went to Hebron to do sacrifices and worship the Lord. And really what that is is a manipulation. It's trying to, to use and abuse a religion and God for your own ends. And here we see that David is refusing to do that. He knows what happens when, that hap- when, when you do that, and he, he refuses. He said, it'd be really easy for me to take the Ark of the Covenant with me. It's the thing that has the symbol of God's presence with you. But David said, no, I'm not going to use and abuse religion and try and force God to do something for me. Instead, he submits himself to God's will. He doesn't try and grasp at power. He recognizes God is the one who gives him power, and he releases himself back to the Lord. But he's also not naive, and he doesn't know the future. So he also says to the priest, and guess what? I kind of need eyes and ears in the city. And so if you guys bring back the Ark of the Covenant, I'll wait. The Lord will do what the Lord will do, and I'll trust him for that. But I want you to be my eyes and ears. Secretly, I want you to be listening and living in Jerusalem. And I will wait down at the Jordan. And if you hear anything, you can send messengers. You can send your sons to me and tell me what you hear. So there we see again a a way being made for, for David to come back to Jerusalem later on. 
The next people that David meets, uh, he, he is actually a messenger. A messenger comes running up and tells him the bad news that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David is terrified. And so he prays out a really quick prayer, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Because he knows, oh no, if this guy is helping counsel Absalom, then we're going to be in some deep trouble because he's really cunning and wise. And immediately, again, we see God's provision. As David arrived at the, at the summit where the people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him. His robe torn and dust on his head, he was grieving and ready to follow David wherever David would go. But David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. And look, the priests are there too. They're going to be there to help you. So if you hear anything from the king, go tell the priests. They'll tell their sons, and their sons will run and give me the news. So David's friend, Hushai, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. A way is being made in the midst of all these consequences for David to remain king. God has not forgotten his promise and his covenant to David that he would always have a member of his family to sit on the throne. But God is also allowing the consequences of David's past sin to run their course. How did things get this bad, though? And you think, really? How could David have been so blind? How could he not see what was coming? Well, I think to understand a little bit more of that, we have to go back to those questions I asked earlier about entitlement and rebellion. It all stems from David's entitlement and rebellion to the Lord with Bathsheba, thinking that what he wanted he could just take, and disregarding God and disregarding others. And we see that playing out Amnon does it with Tamar. Absalom, that's an interesting one. Because it's really easy to vilify Absalom and say, oh my goodness, he's just a power-hungry, rebellious kid. But actually, I can start to understand how he would get there. Because it starts with Tamar, his sister. Tamar deserved justice. Amnon deserved punishment, and his father didn't give it understandable, cold rage. And when left sitting long enough, it's easy for that rage. And that, that uh, entitlement, that's just, that they do, they, are, they do deserve justice to start feeding lies that you should take matters into your own hands. That you can justify your actions. You can justify your actions. I'll do what my dad wouldn't do. He's not going to do it, then my, my, my act of rebellion and murdering my brother is justified because justice needs to be served. And from that moment on, little choices, you begin to believe the lies that you know best, that you can serve justice even. And when reality, it all comes down to putting yourself before God, even putting yourself in God's shoes, and putting yourself before others, and you become unaware of all the consequences and how it's actually affecting those around you. 
The difference between David and Absalom is repentance. Absalom is unrepentant. His ultimatum to the king, either see him, let, let me see your face, and then kill me if I've done anything wrong. He's not, even, he's not admitting that he did anything wrong. He's just saying, he's basically calling the king's bluff. He's, he very well could have been thinking, well, my dad didn't punish Amnon, so he probably won't have the guts to punish me. And by giving them this ultimatum, kind of forcing his hand and saying, okay, is my dad actually going to do anything here, or is he not? And it works. David doesn't do anything. He by- David bypasses justice and bypasses repentance and says, fine, Absalom, welcome back to the family. But it was too late. That wasn't true reconciliation. Absalom's heart has been so bitter and so cold that he no longer actually considers himself David's son. He considers himself a rival for the throne. And from there, you can easily see how one choice after another and how his thinking and how his sin would lead him down this path to to cold, hard, calculated attempt at murdering of his own father again. Rebellion doesn't always start with a cold-hearted fight against power. Sometimes it starts with a real injustice. Real wrong had been done. And then it starts as the temptation seeps in to think, to only think of yourself and to think that you know better and that you should and now you have the right to do something about it. It says in Romans somewhere, I think it's Romans 12. Yep, Romans 12, 19, it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Absalom is using his injustice, uh, the injustice done to Tamar, as justification and reasons for basically playing God. God was God's role was to hand out punishment. It was God's role to bring justice, not Absalom's. And yet, he began to believe that he was responsible for it. Rebellion and all of these sins, in my mind when I was thinking about it, goes back to the breaking of the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And we see again and again what these, the root of these sins, there are many, but the root of them is putting ourselves and themselves in front of God, playing the part of God, and putting others um, behind you, putting yourself and your desires before that of others. Uh, St. Augustine says he defines sin as disordered love, or love that is not directed appropriately. And I think that's very accurate here. A love for yourself, a love for your wants, can easily lead you to creating havoc around you. I think, what is this, how do we worship out of this? What, what response do, do we have here? I think there's a number of different things. There's um, obvious, don't rebel, but 
I think the trickier part is to take a good hard look at where it is that we're feeling entitled. Because like I said, some things of entitlement are, are valid. Justice being served, that's, that's valid. You know, our freedom, a right for freedom, that's, that's absolutely valid. But then we have all of these other voices in our culture telling us what we do deserve. And we can, without realizing it, begin to believe that we do deserve things. And then all of a sudden, we don't even think that we believe these things. We don't even know it. And then we can start acting rebelliously when we don't even realize it. So the band's going to come up in a moment. And I want to provide a space to allow God to help us filter through. Help us filter through the desires of our heart. And say, God, where is it? that my desires and your desires are different. God, where is it that I have started to love other things instead of you? God, where has that desire led me to rebel, led me to take control instead of give it to you? And as you think of those things, there's papers on the, on the things you sit on, chairs. Ugh. And you can write those things down. And then when you feel ready, I'm going to put up two garbage cans here, one on each side, and I want you to throw it in there, rip it in there, shred it in there, but let it go. Entitlement will only lead to bitterness. Let God just get rid of it. It's going to hurt because it takes humility. It takes humility to recognize where we've done something wrong. But that is the only way to receive the true life and true forgiveness. Repentance is the only way to the life that Jesus calls us to. So let's practice uncomfortableness for a moment and ask the Lord to bring these things to our minds and then give it back to him. I'm going to invite the band up at this point. And I'm going to close with a couple of avenues that we can begin thinking through. Henry Nouwen, when asked why the temptation for power is so irresistible at times, uh, he said, it's because it's easier to control God than to trust God. It's easier to control people than to love people. And it's easier to take life than to live life and to love life. Where are those areas where you have taken control away from God instead of submitting to God? Where are those areas that you are trying to control people instead of love people? Where are those areas you're trying to control and take life instead of love life? There may be areas in your life where you feel like you deserve something maybe relationships attempted to put your spouse above uh, you above your spouse it may become all about how they're not serving you well 
You may feel injustice because you think your siblings are getting more attention than you are. Or you may be angry because your friends are spending more time with somebody else and you feel like they should spend more time with you. Could be church relationships. You feel like the church isn't serving your needs. Feel injustice when things don't go well or aren't tailored to what you think you need or you want. You may be tempted to take control and try and manipulate friends, family, and church to accomplish what you want. Maybe that you think life should revolve around me. I should be able to take what I want, a nice car, a phone. Everybody else has a phone. I want one too. I deserve it. You might want to try and put your needs first. doesn't matter if you can't afford it or if you should have it. doesn't matter if others will suffer. You should just take it. It may be that you think that I deserve something because of my hard work. When something's taken away, you feel injustice. Maybe the provision God is giving you right now can't support the level of living you're accustomed to. And you feel injustice that you can't do what you used to be able to do, whether it's financially, with your time, with your energy. Luxuries becoming my necessities. I urge you, let it go. Let the Lord breathe his humbleness into you and free you from the burden of living under the weight of entitlement. Because let me tell you, it is tiring to always feel like you deserve things and that you never get what you should have. It will keep you pinned down in bitterness, anger, resentment, and lead you down a path of rebellion that will only lead to destruction and ruin of your relationships. Let it go. Maybe there has been real injustice. Maybe true wrong has happened to you or someone close to you, and you are wrestling with anger and resentment that comes up inside of you. You may be tempted to think that you deserve to take action, that you should just act out the justice that's really needed, but it's actually a disguise for revenge. Bring it to the Lord. As the band plays, write down whatever it is the Lord brings up to your mind. Throw it away. And then we will have prayer partners along um, the sides. And I encourage you, they have a prayer of blessing. As you get rid of these lies, allow them, just stop for a minute to pray a short prayer of blessing, of truth of God into your life as you return to your seat. Father, we thank you that your spirit is here. We want life, but it's hard to accept it because it means we have to be humble. And Lord, sometimes we don't want to give these things up. Would you help our desires to be more in line with yours and our love to be more in line with yours? Would you give us the courage to listen and to respond to you today? Amen.